Welcome to another lecture in the MSK Cornerstone course. This lecture is a continuation of our foot and ankle lecture series. In this lecture, we will be focusing on trauma of the foot and ankle. Specifically in this talk, we'll focus on trauma involving the hind foot. The next lecture will focus more on trauma involving the forefoot. All right, so let's start off with talus fractures. First, some anatomy pertinent to the talus. The talus is almost entirely covered with cartilage. In fact, about 70% of it is covered in articular cartilage. It has no muscle or tendinous attachments, meaning it relies almost entirely on its bony constraints for stability. The talus has several important articulations. The talar head articulates within the navicular bone and the sustentaculum tali of the calcaneus, while the inferior surface and lateral process articulate with the posterior facet of the calcaneus. The posterior process has medial and lateral tubercles separated by a groove. What structure lies within this groove? The flexor hallucis longus. The talus has a rather tenuous blood supply. There are contributions from both the anterior and posterior tibial arteries, as well as the perineal artery. The posterior tibial artery gives rise to the artery of the tarsal canal, which supplies the majority of the talar body. The deltoid branch of the posterior tibial artery supplies the medial aspect of the talar body. The deltoid branch is important in that during a displaced fracture dislocation, it may be the only remaining blood supply to the talus. In Hawkins' three fracture dislocations of the body, the talus will rotate around the deltoid ligament. Therefore, the deltoid branch vascularity remains intact. This is an important consideration for approaches to fracture fixation. When approaching the medial side, a medial malleolar osteotomy will preserve the integrity of the deltoid branch of the posterior tibial artery, thereby preserving the blood supply to the talus. The anterior tibial artery and perineal artery also contribute to the blood supply to the head and neck. Overall, however, just remember that the artery of the tarsal canal, a branch of the posterior tibial artery, is the major blood supply to the talar body. So the first fracture we will discuss is one of the most common talus fractures encountered, talar neck fractures. These are high energy injuries that occur when an axial load is placed on a dorsiflexed foot. Standard AP lateral and oblique radiographs of the foot should be obtained. Special views can be obtained to help visualize the tailored neck. As always, CT scans are the best study for fully evaluating the fracture pattern. Be on the lookout for other fractures as well, as concomitant fractures occur in up to 90% of all tailored neck fractures. We classify tailored neck fractures based upon the Hawkins classification system. This is a nice classification system in that it allows us to predict the likelihood of subsequent avascular necrosis. Type 1 fractures are non-displaced fractures with a 0 to 13% incidence of avascular necrosis. Type 2 fractures have a subtalar dislocation and a 20 to 50% chance of developing avascular necrosis. Type 3 fractures have a subtalar and tibiotalar dislocation with a 20 to 100% chance of developing avascular necrosis. And finally, type 4 fractures have a subtalar, tibiotalar, and talar navicular dislocation with upwards of a 70 to 100% chance of developing avascular necrosis. Patients with a fracture dislocation of the talus should be emergently reduced. If the talus is completely extruded, it needs to be reduced and given a chance to heal. Of course, this is done with a thorough irrigation and debridement. Hawkins type 1 fractures that are non-displaced can be treated in a short leg cast. Patients will typically be non-weight-bearing for 6 weeks with a total casting time of 8 to 12 weeks. If any displacement of the fracture exists, so basically all type 2, 3, and 4 fractures, patients will require an open reduction internal fixation. The goal of surgery is to recreate a perfect anatomic reconstruction while preserving the blood supply to all of the fragments by preserving the soft tissue attachments. This is typically done through an anterior medial and anterolateral approach. 
Patients will be non-weight bearing for up to three months following surgery. Following surgery on repeat post-op radiographs, you'll be hoping to see a Hawkins sign. What is the Hawkins sign? This is the appearance of subchondral lucency around six to eight weeks after fracture fixation. This lucency indicates that the vascular supply to the talus is intact and the patient will likely not go on to avascular necrosis. Post-traumatic arthritis is particularly common in patients and they should be warned about this at the time of injury. Subtalar arthritis is the most common complication developing in over 50% of patients. Tibiotalar arthritis is also very common and is seen in up to one-third of all cases. Finally, Taylor neck fractures with significant medial comminution have been known to develop a varus malunion. Again, I'll repeat that, a varus malunion with medial comminution. Think about it, the medial wall crumbles so the neck collapses into varus. This will manifest clinically with weight bearing on the lateral side of the foot and decreased subtalar eversion, which will eventually lead to a subsequent subtalar arthrosis. It can be corrected with a medial opening wedge osteotomy of the Taylor neck. Dorsal malunion can also occur if the displaced headpiece is not appropriately reduced on the body and it heals in a dorsal position relative to the neck. This causes impingement of the talus on the tibia and decreased ankle dorsiflexion. This, however, does not occur as commonly as a varus malunion, but helps to illustrate the importance of achieving an anatomic reduction. So for Taylor neck fractures, know that the artery of the tarsal sinus is the major blood supply to the body and the deltoid branch of the posterior tibial artery may be the only remaining blood supply following a displaced Taylor neck fracture dislocation. Know the Hawkins classification 1 through 4 and the Hawkins sign, which is subchondral lucency appearing at 6 to 8 weeks, indicates preserved vascularity to the Taylor body. Know that subtalar arthritis is the most common complication and tibiotalar arthritis is not far behind. In varus malunion, which occurs commonly with significant medial comminution, it manifests as weight-bearing on the lateral border of the foot and decreased subtalar eversion and is corrected with a medial opening wedge osteotomy of the Taylor neck. There are several other fracture patterns associated with the talus, however these are not as common as Taylor neck fractures. Taylor head fractures can occur with talonavicular dislocations. Lateral process fractures, known as snowboarder fractures, occur with axial loading on a dorsiflexed foot. Posterior process fractures can occur off the posterior medial or lateral tubercles. And again, what runs in the groove separating the tubercles? The flexor hallucis longus. Posterior medial tubercle fractures occur as an avulsion of the posterior talotibial ligament, while posterior lateral tubercle fractures occur as an avulsion of the posterior talofibular ligament. What would you be thinking if the so-called posterior process fracture seemed well corticated and there were no symptoms at all? This is likely an ostrigonum and can be managed with observation and patient education. Again, as with Taylor neck fractures, a standard radiographic series of the ankle and foot should be obtained. Some talus fractures can be difficult to identify on radiographs. However, if clinical suspicion remains high, a CT scan can be ordered to fully elucidate the fracture pattern. Non-displaced fractures defined as those with less than a 2 millimeter step-off can be treated non-weight bearing in a short leg cast for six weeks. Fractures displaced greater than two millimeters may require an open reduction internal fixation. Complications are similar to those of Taylor neck fractures with the most common complication being post-traumatic arthritis, especially subtalar arthritis. Overall, know that these fractures can be difficult to identify on radiographs and a CT scan is required for the diagnosis. Let's move on now to subtalar dislocations. As you would suspect, these occur commonly during high-energy injuries such as motor vehicle accidents, and they are defined as either medial or lateral dislocations. Medial dislocations will present with a foot locked in a supinated position. These occur more commonly than lateral dislocations, compromising 65-80% to 80% of all subtalar dislocations. With medial dislocations, the tailor head will be located superior to the navicular on lateral images. 
A reduction maneuver should be attempted on all dislocations with the knee in flexion and ankle in plantar flexion to relax the gastrocnemius. About 70% of all subtalar dislocations can be reduced and 30% will need to be opened. The structures blocking reduction are opposite of the direction of dislocation. So medial dislocations are blocked by lateral structures. The most common structures impeding reduction are the extensor digitorum brevis or perineal tendons. Medial dislocations are also associated with talar head fractures, navicular fractures, and posterior process of the talus fractures. Lateral dislocations present with the foot locked in a pronated position. These are more likely to be open than medial dislocations. On lateral dislocations, the tailor head will be in line or inferior to the navicular. And of course, lateral dislocations are blocked by medial structures, most commonly the posterior tibialis tendon, FHL or FDL. Lateral dislocations are more likely to have a fracture and are associated most commonly with cuboid fractures, but also anterior calcaneus fractures and lateral process of the talus fractures. Regardless of the direction of dislocation, subtalar arthritis remains the most common complication. It is present radiographically in up to 90% of patients, however, only about 60% will remain symptomatic. For subtalar dislocations, know that medial is more common, but lateral is more likely to be open and associated with fractures. Medial dislocations are blocked by lateral structures, including the extensor digitorum brevis, and lateral dislocations are blocked more commonly by medial structures, usually the posterior tibialis tendon. And regardless of the direction of dislocation, subtalar arthritis occurs in up to 90% of patients. All right, next up are calcaneus fractures. First, let's discuss some of the calcaneus anatomy. The superior surface of the calcaneus contains three articular facets, the anterior, middle, and posterior facets. The posterior facet is the largest and is responsible for the majority of weight bearing through the subtalar joint. The sustentaculum tali is a horizontal eminence that projects medially off the upper medial aspect of the calcaneus. It serves as the attachment point for the spring ligament, or calcaneonavicular ligament, and supports the tailor neck. The deltoid and talocalcaneal ligaments are also attached to the sustentaculum tali, and on its undersurface is a groove in which the FHL travels. The sustentaculum tali is the location of the anterior medial fracture piece, also known as the constant fragment in calcaneous fractures. The constant fragment has been thought to not displace significantly during calcaneous fractures due to its strong ligamentous attachments and therefore would serve as a landmark with which to rebuild the lateral fracture fragments. However, recent studies have shown that the constant fragment may be displaced in up to 42% of calcaneous fractures, so potentially they should rethink changing the name from constant fragment to the somewhat constant fragment. The middle facet is the anterior medial and lies on the sustentaculum tali. The anterior facet is generally in confluence with the middle facet. The bifurcate ligament is a Y-shaped ligament that has one attachment running from the anterior process to the cuboid and another from the anterior process to the navicular. During inversion-type injuries, it can cause an avulsion fracture of the anterior process of the calcaneus. So how do calcaneus fractures occur? They are commonly associated with high-energy axial loading mechanisms. You can imagine that the force transmission up through the lower extremities can cause other associated injuries. In fact, vertebral fractures occur on up to 10% of the time with associated bilateral calcaneus fractures. When considering different types of calcaneus fractures, it helps to subdivide them into intraarticular and extraarticular fracture patterns depending on whether or not the facets are involved. So let's start off with extraarticular. Extraarticular calcaneus fracture patterns include the anterior process avulsion fracture I just mentioned and calcaneal tuberosity fractures. Again, for the anterior process fractures, the bifurcate ligament is Y-shaped and attaches the anterior process to the cuboid and navicular. 
During inversion type injuries, you can see an avulsion off the anterior process of the calcaneus. Fractures of the anterior process that involve less than 25% of the calcaneonavicular joint can be treated non-operatively. The second type of extraarticular fracture is the calcaneal tuberosity fractures, also known as a tongue-type fracture. These occur following a forceful contraction of the gastrocnemius complex and can avulse a large fragment from the posterior calcaneus. This occurs more commonly in osteopenic bone, however it is frequently seen in normal bone quality as well. The injury is somewhat of a surgical emergency. The calcaneus lies within a subcutaneous position and significant displacement of a tongue-type fracture can cause pressure necrosis on the skin. We should reduce these as quickly as possible. If minimally displaced, it can sometimes be treated with closed reduction and percutaneous pinning. If, however, the fracture cannot be appropriately closed reduced, an open reduction internal fixation should be performed. Again, for this injury, remember that timing is of the essence and the skin is at risk. All right, pop quiz. What diagnosis would you be considering in a female high school cross-country runner that presents with heel pain that has a female athlete triad of amenorrhea, eating disorder, and osteoporosis? A calcaneal stress fracture. And what imaging modalities would you use to diagnose her? An MRI of the foot. And how would you treat it? Six weeks non-weight bearing and short leg cast. All right, let's move back now to intraarticular calcaneous fractures. For this, I'm going to discuss the Sanders classification, as that is the one I'm familiar with and the one I've seen popping up on examinations. It is literally one of the easiest classification systems in all of orthopedics to remember. The Sanders classification is based upon the number of articular fragments seen on a coronal CT at the widest point of the posterior facet. Type 1 is non-displaced. A type 2 has two fragments, in other words, one fracture line. Type 3 has three fragments, and type 4 is comminuted with more than three fragments. There's no way that you can forget how this works. So first, we start our evaluation of a calcaneous fracture with AP lateral and oblique radiographs of the foot. From the lateral radiograph, we can measure the bowler angle and critical angle of Gasson. Bowler's angle is normally between 25 and 40 degrees and is drawn from a line down the anterior process to the top of the posterior facet and from the top of the posterior facet to the superior tuberosity. Again, normal is between 20 and 40 degrees, with lesser values representing flattening of the posterior facet. The critical angle of Gasson is drawn from the downslope of the posterior facet to the upslope of the anterior process. Other nice views that can be obtained and are particularly useful intraoperatively to ensure an anatomic reduction of the articular surface are the Broden's view and Harris axial view. Broden's view allows you to visualize the articular surface of the posterior facet, and the Harris axial view lets you look for any widening or varus malpositioning of the tuberosity. So you've gotten your radiographs and all your special views, but this is 2016, so no matter what, you're going to get a CT scan anyway. If you have a top-notch radiology department, you can get 30-degree semi-coronal cuts, which help you to visualize fracture displacement at the posterior middle facets. So how are you going to treat these patients with calcaneous fractures? Well, first, let's discuss non-operative management. Acutely, these patients need to be assessed for developing a compartment syndrome of the foot. Missing a compartment syndrome of the foot will lead to what later deformity? the development of claw toes. You should also ask about low back pain as lumbar spine compression injuries secondary to axial load force transmission occur in up to 10% of all calcaneous fractures. Patients with non-displaced calcaneous fractures can be placed in a bulky Jones splint and told to aggressively elevate to reduce swelling. So who can be treated non-operatively? Well, minimally displaced extraarticular fractures and non-displaced intraarticular fractures can be managed with cast immobilization and non-weight bearing for 10 to 12 weeks. Other patient-specific fractures should also be considered. 
For example, if the patient is a paranoid schizophrenic that just jumped off a parking garage sustaining bilateral calcaneus fractures, it is unlikely that they will comply with your post-operative non-weight-bearing precautions. Furthermore, there's a lot of research on who does terrible after calcaneus fractures. I will summarize it in one patient description. If you have a 55-year-old, obese, diabetic smoker that fell off the roof of a building at his construction job, sustaining bilateral calcaneus fractures, and now comes into the office with his workers' compensation attorney and x-rays that show a bowler's angle of less than zero, just know in advance that he is going to do awful. In other words, age over 50, obesity, being male, manual labor, workers' compensation, smoker, vasculopath, bilateral injuries, extensive comminution, bowler angles less than zero, all predictive of poor outcome. Surgical factors associated with an outcome are the quality of your reduction. So at least that's within your control. So do a good job and get an anatomic reduction. Most surgeons will wait for swelling and blisters to resolve, which may take about two to three weeks before initiating surgical intervention. The goal of surgery is to reconstruct the articular surface and restore the calcaneal height and tuberosity width. Taking care of the skin is of utmost importance when fixing calcaneous fractures. Many surgeons utilize the extensile lateral L-shaped incision using no-touch technique with regard to skin management. It is important to develop full thickness skin flaps to decrease the risk of skin necrosis. Lateral plates and screws are frequently used for fixation. If the tuberosity remains wide, it can lead to subfibular impingement and perineal tendon irritation. Also, great care should be taken when placing screws from the lateral to medial direction, especially if attempting to fix one into the sustentaculum tali. What structure runs underneath the sustentaculum tali that could get tethered by a screw? the flexor halicus longus tendon, and how can you check for this? Intraoperative passive extension of the great toe. Most patients after fixation of a calcaneus fracture are made non-weight bearing for a period of two to three months. The sequela of calcaneus fractures is not without its own problems. Many of these patients will go on to develop subtalar arthritis. If symptomatic, this can be treated with a subtalar fusion. Malunions of the calcaneus fractures also occur in which there is a loss of the calcaneus height. This manifests clinically as blocked ankle dorsiflexion. This can be treated with a distraction bone block subtalar arthrodesis, a procedure in which the subtalar joint is distracted, a bone block inserted, and a fusion of the block to the talus and calcaneus performed. This should restore the normal talocalcaneal height and improve ankle motion. All right, that's it for our hind foot fractures lecture involving talus and calcaneus fractures. There's a lot to know on these particular fractures, but they're probably one of the more tested foot trauma categories, so I would take some time and review this section prior to any examination. The next lecture will focus specifically on midfoot and forefoot trauma. As always, please check back for any additions and modifications to the lecture. Thanks for listening.